free stuff is awesome, but free stuff to liven up your bedroom is even better. Go to adamandeve.com and use the Thousand Movie Project podcast coupon code TMPP to get 50% off of your purchase. Not only that, enter offer code TMPP at checkout and get six free spicy movies. And that's what we're all about here on Thousand Movie Project podcast, cinema. Also, DVDs are just fun. They're vintage now. It's like masturbating to a telegram. Plus, plus, free shipping on the whole thing. Go to adamandeve.com, select the lube, the harness, the dildo of your choice, and enter the offer code TMPP, as in Thousand Movie Project Podcast, for 50% off. And now, on to the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. I've never met the devil, but based on what I've read, I did work with a guy who was a lot like him. His name was Reggie, and Reggie and I don't work together anymore, but he, he was interesting to observe when we did. Reggie is 54 years old, he's got a couple of grown kids and a wife, so he's a busy guy. And the reason I say he's a lot like the devil is because he was kind, he was kind of terrible, but not in the way that you, you might first think. Like if I say, oh, I knew this guy named Reggie, he was a lot like Lucifer, you might think that he's doing really insidious Hitler-type shit, like atrocities. So let me emphasize that Reggie is only similar to Satan. They're not identical. Most of what I've read about the devil shows how he's got this knack for integrating himself into places where he doesn't belong. How he feeds on and exploits people's weaknesses, their goodwill, how he capitalizes, in fact, on the idea that goodwill is essentially a form of weakness. And that was very much Reggie. Reggie is in his 50s, as I said, and he's married and he's got a couple kids, but the only relative of whom he ever volunteers any information, the only one he ever mentions out of the blue, is his younger son, the athlete. Reggie had been a great athlete in his own right back in the day. His game of choice was baseball, and you could see he was on cloud nine just to talk about those years in the diamond. I feel at this point like I've sat in the company of a million guys recounting their bygone days of athletic glory, and I've never quite understood it. They're always like, I was so fast, people would throw the ball and I'd say, boom, and I'd catch the ball, and then the women would kiss me on the penis for it, and boy, I tell you, there never was another person like me. But I also think that those stories kind of belong mostly to post-war generations of men. Because when you talk to men who grew up prior to World War II, they don't really talk about how fast they could run when they were kids, unless the story is about how they were running from Nazis. I was fortunate enough to grow up with two great-grandfathers who were both sharp and they could tell you stories about the past. You ask them for stories about growing up in the Depression and they're like, One time I was building a house and a man came up to me and said, You can't build that house there. And so I said, Floom, and I killed him. But Reggie's past, for all of its glory, was just like everyone else's past in the sense that it was behind him. Reggie would reminisce and glow in the cheeks about the fact that once upon a time he could run very fast, but he could also turn very quickly morose about it. Cloud Nine would begin to darken. But it wasn't just a matter of becoming somber and mournful to think that his moment of glory was suddenly behind him. That's what most of us experience when we look back on our heyday. And it's because Reggie didn't seem to believe that he had been subject to the same unrelenting decay as the rest of us. He felt that his youth had been stolen from him. And so, in talking about his baseball years, his mood would switch from rapture to rage. His brow would pinch, there'd be a long pause while he stared off at the wall, and then he'd start shaking his head. And from there, he would go into the spiel of what happened, capital W, capital H. He'd talk about how he really could have been somebody, could have been a contender. But then his whole future was sabotaged by a high school 
coach. That coach had a problem with Reggie. And when he first told me the story, I said, well, why didn't he like you? And Reggie said, he was jealous. What had happened is that Reggie apparently needed his coach to sign off on some kind of form in order to make him eligible for a scholarship, something like that. But the coach procrastinated, quote unquote. He didn't get the paper turned in on time. And because this coach was late, Reggie was not able to apply to some college program that would have ensured his future in Major League Baseball. I, f I forget the details. The point is this. Reggie, according to Reggie, could have been a great baseball player in the major leagues if only his jealous high school baseball coach, 35 years prior, had filled out a form on time. And when Reggie talks about that baseball coach, you would think that it had happened yesterday. He raises his voice, he starts making stabbing gestures, hitting the desk, clapping his hands. Why couldn't you fill out the form, Dan? It was only one form. When it was clear that Reggie was opening this trap door, this emotional trap door again, people would kind of start edging their way out of the room. Because it's awkward to have somebody get suddenly very angry in a tranquil work environment. And it's somehow even more awkward when the thing that's making this person angry is a memory. Like, it's not something in the room that we can all commiserate about and discuss. So Reggie would start talking about how he'd gotten screwed out of a career of wealth and fame and people would say yeah well you know did you ever watch lost so reggie seldom saw an opportunity to really spin his thread as far as he wanted to but if you sat there in front of him while he went on his rants and you just nodded and listened and every now and then prompted him to go just a little bit farther with his story and his feelings, just go a little bit farther and a little bit farther, he would fully wrap himself up in the narrative that he had constructed for himself, the narrative whereby Reggie's own accountability for all of his life's shortcomings fell from his hands. He would say, flat out, in regard to the coach who neglected to sign one innocuous piece of paper in the year 1980, that man ruined my life. Pay no mind to the fact that Reggie's married or that he's got two healthy kids and a home and great health. If you let him talk long enough, if you create an environment whereby he feels like he can really open up, he will reveal to you in no unclear terms that he considers his life a waste, a consummate failure. And all because one man 35 years ago neglected to sign a paper. So yes, I would get a little bit uncomfortable sometimes when Reggie got really intense about how he had been wronged, about how his life had been thrown off course and he now has nothing to fall back on, and when he'd say that he was, quote, rottening by working this job. But for the most part, I was relatively comfortable. One day, when I got to work a few minutes late because parking was particularly bad, I, I went into the office and I started complaining about it. Reggie heard me out, and then he said, well, I actually don't have that problem. And then he chuckled, haha. Turns out that his wife hurt her back a couple years ago, and they got a handicap decal. Her back is, is fine now, she's fully recovered, so Reggie uses the decal now so that he can get quick, easy parking in the handicap spots. I said, well, what about people with disabilities who need to park there? And Reggie scoffed. He said, man, do you ever see anybody with a disability around here? So I started counting on my fingers. One of the colleagues on our floor is blind. Another one is a paraplegic. Two of them use walkers to get around. And there's one colleague, I don't know the exact nature of her ailment, but she's tall and slim. She's in her 50s, but her ankles are the size of grapefruits. And they're laced with bulging veins, and she walks very gingerly with the help of a cane, and she's always in a cold in, in the cold sweat, not of not of heat, but of chronic pain. At the end of my spiel, Reggie gave me a pitying look and a sly little smile, and he nodded like he knew something that I didn't know, and he said to me, I'm sure they get around just fine without that one parking space, Alex. I asked him what he would say if security were to see this tall, muscular dude get out of a car in a disabled spot. And Reggie grinned at the question, and he leaned back in his chair and he said, That's my business. 
They don't have to know why I'm disabled. It's confidential. All they need to see is the decal. I'd been telling myself for a while at this point that Reggie reminded me of somebody. I hadn't been able to put my finger exactly on who it was, but that night, as I was walking through the parking lot on my way to my car, I realized, oh, right, the devil. And it wasn't so much because he was doing something evil as it was that he just, he had some kind of venom about him. He was very proud, and he spun stories about himself, and he looked down on people. And when you saw him sitting by himself, j just lost in thought, he would have this gentle smirk on his face. And you could tell that, in his mind, that desk chair he was sitting in was a throne. And so it seemed both bitterly ironic and perfectly fitting when Reggie decided he was going to seminary school. Reggie was becoming a pastor, and was apparently so far along in seminary school that he was able to give sermons at his local church on Sundays. And he loved it. Every Monday he spoke about his sermons from the day before, and he would spare no detail in describing the rapturous response he generated from the penitents. He was back in his glory. It was Reggie's chapter two, his second inning, if you will. But let me just say, I would rather in those days that he were raging about his youth. Because the religion thing was super uncomfortable. He would ask people if they believed in God, and if they said no, he'd ask them why. And if they then began to give their reasons, he would smirk and lean back in his chair, and he would lace his fingers over his belly, and he would look at the person with the smirk of what I'd have to say is a wizard. And I'm going to stick to the wizard comparison, because I think we, we need pagan analogies to describe this man's Christianity. He would allow them to talk and talk, and then he'd engage. And regrettably, I took the bait pretty often. I would tell him, for example, that when I look at the Old Testament, I look at it as a book of myths rather than fa a factual historical document. And he would sit up straight and he would throw his arms up and he would say, there's factual evidence that Noah's Ark was real. They found the wood, Alex. They found the wood. And this is, here's the thing. I knew that he was wrong. I have not looked into the science about Noah's Ark. I have not seen anything on the History Channel about what's been found or what's not been found. I really can't say that I'm educated on the topic. But listener, I know that no scientist in the past 2,000 years was ever studying a piece of wood with a magnifying glass and then looked up and said, by God, it did not happen. Now, there are a lot of things that I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to pay my rent this month. I don't know why my car goes when I put it in reverse. I don't know why all these stray cats in my neighborhood come sprawling across my driveway to lick their dicks at night until dawn. But the one thing I do know is that no scientist ever lifted a triumphant hunk of wood before a room full of reporters and said, guess what, guys, we found it. And I don't even have to Google this. I just know that it did not happen. Call it arrogant, call it presumptuous, call it narrow-minded, call it faith. I also know that I cannot convince this man to see things my way, and yet I would habitually allow myself to fall into a, a contentious dialogue about it in which he would invariably end up putting me somehow on the defensive. Anyways, we would go back and forth and he would just laugh at me like I was pathetic and naive and he'd be like, the science is on my side here, Alex. Anyway, I used to argue with him and it never did anything except make me angry. And the thing is, Reggie is a charming guy. He's funny. Probably 75% of his conversation is, you know, optimistic. He will tell you what you want to hear. He'll flatter you. I really did get along with Reggie. But, but it was always clear that Reggie was looking out for one person. Reggie. He violated company policy with impunity. If you were his friend, he would come up to you and talk in some arrogant whisper about how he had gotten around having to pay for something, how he had finagled some kind of discount. He prided himself on his dishonesty, if that dishonesty proved remunerative. 
He used a handicapped spot that he didn't need. He disobeyed his superiors and took everything to HR so that he couldn't be fired while an investigation was ongoing. He scoffed at and ridiculed people who didn't ascribe to his exact spiritual beliefs, including Christians of different denominations. And then, after a whole week of this, on Sunday, he would go up to the pulpit and he would preach the teachings of Jesus. He would talk about forgiveness and about honesty and about the need to love one's brother. I don't want to say that Reggie didn't believe in what he preached. I think that to some extent he did. But I've met men like Reggie before. Having once been funny and virile and strong in their youth, they have since aged out of the attributes that most endeared them to people. And so now, in their later age, they try to become a sage. They feel older than they are because their identity was tied up with the trappings of youth. And so now, they're beginning to confuse their age with hardship, confuse their grief with wisdom. So now they want to be the towering intellectual in the room, just as once upon a time they were the towering physical specimen, but they never learned how to study things, or how to think critically. And so what they do, what I think Reggie has done, is they learn the lingo of a movement, or the lingo of a group, and then they learn to speak that lingo with extreme passion. You see this in academia all the time. People lacking for an identity will pick up the language of post-structuralism, for instance, and then suddenly they're wearing a beret and telling you about the thingness of things and the inadequacy of language. They turn it into a shield. They weaponize it. They make you feel foolish for not knowing the lingo. And because you are made to feel that you can't participate in the conversation, you are kept perpetually on the defensive and are therefore less likely to challenge this person and prompt them to confront themselves. I think that Reggie understood intuitively that among Christians in a church, you have, for one thing, a consistent audience and a captive audience, but you also have an audience that is humble and predisposed toward acceptance and forgiveness. It's a fairly safe crowd if you're trying to be loved. So Reggie went up there, he used the language of thy brother and thy mother, and he used words like usurp and forsake. And he shimmied with his shoulders, and he stomped his feet, and he waggled his finger to the sky, and he pounded his chest, and the people loved him. They cheered him on like he probably hadn't been cheered on since those halcyon days in the baseball diamond, before one man neglected to sign a sheet of paper and took it all away from him. The people in the pews told him that he should do this every week, that they would look forward to it. And so he did it every week. He put himself through the necessary schooling, and he got more and more familiar with the lingo, and he did more preaching. I suspect that Reggie does believe in God, but I'm not sure that he considers his God to be particularly encouraging or enlightening. I think he finds his God to be useful. I don't know if you've ever seen The Exorcist, but it's about a little girl named Reagan who gets possessed by the devil. The possession gets worse and worse, and eventually she becomes so violent that they have to keep her arms tied to the bedposts. And there's a scene where Father Karras, one of the two priests who's going to later perform that titular exorcism, he sits down to record a conversation with him or her or it, whatever, with the devil. And so they're talking, and the devil, in the shape of this little girl, suggests that he can move things with his mind. And just then, the drawer on the bedside table jolts open, and the priest smiles, and he pushes the drawer back in, and the devil, you know, gestures to where he's tied to the bed, and he says, kindly undo these straps. And the priest says, well, you're the devil. Can't you make the straps unravel on their own? And the devil smiles and says, that would be much too vulgar a display of power, Karis. And I think that's the nature of the devil as a character. He is essentially a trapped person, and his game isn't so much about undoing his own straps, it's about charming you into untying them for him.
It's time now for a guided meditation. I want you to turn off the lights and assume a comfortable position and just breathe. I want you to count to four on the inhalation and count to four on the exhalation. I want you to imagine that the shape you now occupy, whether you're sitting upright or laying down in your bed, I want you to imagine that your body is made completely of crystal. Fine, delicate, sparkling crystal. Don't drop it! You're very fragile right now. Very vulnerable. So you're this beautiful, empty, crystalline vessel. And I want you to imagine that you're slowly filling up with fluid. It's a warm, smooth, sun-colored liquid that's filling your feet and then climbing slowly upward past your ankles, up your calves. And as this warm fluid is filling your legs, your mind is clearing itself of all your present concerns. You're becoming mindful of your surroundings. You're in the most relaxing place imaginable. New Jersey. There's a man urinating on a tire just a few feet away from you, and a policeman just called you a motherfucker. Meanwhile, the liquid is moving farther up the insides of your legs, blooming into your kneecaps, making your upper half feel cool by comparison. The contrast of the two temperatures is refreshing. It's soothing. You feel your senses sharpening to appreciate the sounds and sensations around you. And in your sudden awareness of your surroundings, you notice that the sun has begun to set. You are totally alone on the sidewalk. And now a bunch of cats are coming toward you. They appear to be in a gang. And you think, oh man, I made a very delicate crystal right now. I sure hope those cats don't fuck with me. But then your worst fears are confirmed when the red cat, the one who appears to be the leader, he says, Hey, we're Jersey cats and we're here to hurt you. Meanwhile, the liquid is rising steadily up your thighs, and the two pools are joining in your waist. There are no deadlines in your life right now. So long as you remain in this position, breathing deeply, focusing on that warmth rising steadily in your midsection, time will not move. The moment will not leave you. You are planted here. You are secure here. You are safe. Except not from the Jersey cats, you not. You remember suddenly that you've heard tell of these Jersey cats. Their claws are four inches long and they can run 40 miles an hour. They're the only breed of cat that can handle a firearm. Amen. 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 What's the Arthritis, all right, let's loose these folks now. Lord, we pray now that you'll loose these arthritic conditions, Lord. And heal these bones. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. What's trouble, sister? Diabetes. All right. The Lord heal that other sister. Now heal you. Now, Lord, we're praying you that you'll heal this diabetes today, Lord. Today, today, today. Amen. Amen. He's touched you. The Holy Spirit's power went through your body. If you heard the previous episode of the podcast, my conversation with Steve Donahue in the first week of May, you'll know that I've adopted a practice that Steve once recommended, though he doesn't do it himself anymore, where instead of sporadically Googling the news throughout the week and falling into hour-long spirals of just horribly upsetting shit, you should instead buy a few periodicals that you trust, set them aside during the week, and then just pick them up on Sunday when God's not around and read them at your leisure. 
I do still look at CNN a few times throughout the week just to see if anything urgent has happened, and I think my visiting CNN has proven instructive insofar as it's taught me to appreciate that the label breaking news, which is always rendered in bold, capitalized text on the screen, and if it's presented on television, there's usually some oh fuck musical cue that sounds like like an orchestra conductor just pointed at the band and said, all right guys, give me anxiety. It is a musical cue that is supposed to tighten your sphincter. Breaking news, I have learned, does not mean urgent news, nor does it mean interesting or relevant news. Breaking news means that it is breaking. It's new. It just happened or we just found out about it. And it is the job of TV reporters to present that news as though it's very pressing. It isn't a villainous thing that they're doing, but it makes for a slippery slope if you're trying to stay informed. It's kind of like the strategy that thriller writers will often employ in order to make their book more propulsive, in order to get you to read the whole thing in one sitting. They make the chapters very short, just two or four pages, and they end each one with a cliffhanger. The way that this ends up helping them is that the average reader takes about 10 hours to read the average novel. Those 10 hours are usually spaced with most readers across two weeks or so, a little less than an hour of reading per day. If your chapters are short, however, and your story is engaging, then your reader is likely to say, well, just one more chapter, and then just one more chapter after that, and one more chapter after that. It's the pistachio effect. Before they know it, your reader has read half of the novel in one sitting, whereas normally it takes them four sittings to do that and this accomplishment makes the reader feel good about themselves. TV news reporters, finally, are master storytellers within their medium, within their genre, and they have roughly the same goal as a thriller writer, which is to hold your attention. Sometimes they want to hold it against our will, so to speak, and so they will coerce us into staying focused. They'll manipulate you into consuming more than you intended. Which is kind of a cheeky thing when it happens with a book. If we sit down with the intention of reading 20 or 30 pages of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, let's say, but then we end up reading 80 pages or 120 pages, normally when that happens, we'll glance up from the book, we'll see that we've been reading for way longer than we intended, and it elicits a smile. Because after all, when we bought this book, we paid to be gripped, to be entertained, and we feel in such moments like we've gotten our money's worth. This book was so good, it kept me planted in my chair for you know twice as long as I intended. Now, consuming the news is kind of similar, insofar as I think most people would agree that one of our responsibilities as adults, as, as citizens or parents, is to keep abreast of the news and to know what's going on in our community, whether on a local scale, national, global. The prevailing idea is that knowledge, all knowledge, is good. The more you know, the better. So if you read a dozen articles about some political event, or if you listen to three or four podcasts about a certain news item, you read the Wall Street Journal cover to cover, or the New York Times, you might walk away from all of that study with a, a similar high. You have read deeply, you have been such an adult today, you read deeply into a pressing news item of the day, and you feel now as though you're caught up, like you've done your adult duty. So what happens is you spend two or three or four hours getting familiar with that news item, you go to bed feeling informed, and the next day you turn on the TV or you open your newspaper or your tablet and you find that the thing that you so scrupulously studied the day before isn't even being discussed anymore. The thing that you worked so hard to understand because every outlet made it seem so urgently important is now, well, yesterday's news. When the author of that thriller novel, on the other hand, puts the book in your hands, there is an implicit promise on her end that she is going to keep you hooked for five or six or ten hours with a good story that might prompt you to think critically about certain things, it might prompt you to reflect on certain things, but for the most part, it's going to be a rounded experience of entertainment. 
This is the contract between reader and author. The implicit agreement we have with a news outlet, on the other hand, is that we will give that outlet our money, our time, our attention, and in return, that news outlet will keep us informed. But the TV reporter crafts their product in such a way that you feel well-informed on Monday night, but then you feel ill-informed by late Tuesday morning. That paperback thriller you bought has a pre-packaged arc, a beginning, a middle, and an end. The news, however, provides only beginnings and middles. And this, to some degree, is just the nature of news, the nature of information in general. But I do think that a 24-hour news cycle does knowingly capitalize on your susceptibility to stress. CNN, for instance, uses the musical cues and the sweeping graphics of an action movie, a thriller, and their most popular broadcasters employ the stone-faced delivery of dramatic actors. You might have even noticed in the past few years that major news broadcasters tend to openly weep on camera at least twice a year. A 10-hour cycle of network news coverage has all the ingredients of a drama or a thriller without any of the payoff. There's a story with sex here, a story with politics there, with espionage, with all these different things. There's a chuckle here and there, but none of it leads to anything. Anyway, my own news intake is scattershot, mostly just checking in on CNN throughout the week, so I'm trying to move away from that. I'm trying, instead, to leave my heavy news consumption for Sunday, when I will read those six and 7,000 word pieces in The New Yorker. But in reading through The New Yorker this week, I found that every single article, every single article, was about the coronavirus. So after The New Yorker, I read some articles about, out of the New York Times book review, and then feeling overwhelmed by all of the fretting and speculating and finger-pointing around COVID-19, I switched away from periodicals and got back to the book I've been dipping in and out of all week. It's called Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. It's a book about the emotional, mental, cultural, and anatomical components of women's sexuality, which has reams of praise on Amazon about being as cathartic and heartening for women as it is enlightening for men. And it is great. I was reading a passage where Nagoski is talking about how everybody has a sexual accelerator and a sexual break. And everyone's break and everyone's accelerator is a little bit different when it comes to sensitivity. Some people are very easy to turn on and very hard to turn off. Some are very hard to turn on and very easy to turn off. With some people, it takes a long time to do both. It was a science-dense chapter. She was referencing lots of studies you know, involving mice and Iggy Pop, two staples of any healthy sex life. But it was enlightening and conversational and, at the very end of it, quite fun. I had that great feeling of being challenged by a writer and then rewarded with insight. You know what the chief difference was between my reading 50 pages about the coronavirus and then 50 pages about women's sexuality? It's that one of those documents reached a climax. another episode. I'm recording this on a Monday afternoon, and I spent the whole morning reading the last 130-odd pages of Frank Herbert's massive sci-fi masterpiece, Dune, which has, at this point, spun out something like a dozen sequels, half of which I think were written by his oldest son, Brian. And at 794 pages, it took me exactly eight days of, I mean, of, of leisurely quarantine reading to get through it, which I'm, I'm kind of pleased with because I don't normally read an average of 100 pages a day but it, um, so that there's that one there's that element of this being feeling like a success but the other one is that science fiction and high fantasy are not 
my bag at all. I can't I can't blanketly say that I don't like either genre, uh, because at the end of the day, a good story is a good story, and I have definitely found myself engrossed in movies and books from either one of those two genre camps. But what, what tends to discourage me from venturing into that part of the bookstore or that corner of Netflix is that when you're diving into a book that takes place in a completely different world with different customs and whatever, you're supposed to feel kind of confused going into it. You're supposed to just soldier through the first 30 or 100 pages being comfortable with the fact that you're not totally sure of what's going on. And that's fine. There are some literary novels that take place in the most realistic of real worlds and they do the exact same thing. Where you the, the the author wants you to be disoriented for a little while going into it. My my issue is just that I never know how confused I'm supposed to be. Um, and I think it's something to do with my just being generally insecure about my intelligence and like whether I'm understanding what's going on around me. And I've talked about this in the past, that it's not reasonable to look at a book that's been read by tens of millions of people over the course of 50 years and say that you aren't smart enough to grasp it. Most bestsellers were written to be bestsellers, which is to say that they were written to be understood by a major audience. And most people who read and enjoy books, especially books that make the bestseller list, they read as like a pastime. They read it for entertainment. They're not looking for something that's going to bog them down and make them focus really hard. But yeah, so I read Dune. I enjoyed it, but I can't say that I loved it. And frankly, I'm not even sure that my interest in the series can float me through like a sequel of the same length, let alone two or three or four, however many Frank Herbert wrote. What's what's going to end up being a factor in the next podcast is that I find myself reading and watching lots of things these days, not because I want to get familiar with the story um, and enjoy it for what it is, but because there are people I want to be able to talk about it with. Like, I see that Dune is a huge cultural phenomenon. I see that it's beloved and written about by lots of people that I respect. And so I want to be able to participate in that sort of larger cultural conversation. Apart from that, this was an interesting week in terms of, at least in terms of the podcast, because I've been working so hard on editing my book that this episode here is coming out about 10 days later than I wanted it to. I've really been trying to get these out on Fridays, but it was also delayed because I wrote a sketch for it that I then recorded for the podcast and I was tinkering with it endlessly and the recording just didn't work at all. It was it was a sketch about like the frustrations of trying to buy a pillow and how it was so disorienting to try to fucking understand what what are these pseudoscientific details about pillows. But the recording just kind of sucked. It wasn't funny. Um and maybe that can be said about the whole episode that or all these episodes that they're neither funny nor interesting, but in this case I was not amused by the recording at all. And when I'm sitting here recording the podcast and editing it, I'm just laughing. I'm the only <laughs> the podcast is worth doing just because I'm the only one I Anyways, that you get, you know what I'm saying. But I, I decided to take it out of the podcast and make a video of it instead, um, because there were some jokes in it that I didn't want to completely throw away. And for some reason, I think the video worked slightly better than the audio recording. I still think that that video, which is up now on Instagram, is like is is not particularly funny. But I, it, I don't know. There's something about it. It came out stronger as a video than it would have as an as a piece of audio for the podcast and I'm not quite sure why but it's been some it's it's interesting that's never happened before and it's food for thought the other night I had a five-hour conversation on zoom with an old friend Mike and it was super cathartic because I got very drunk and I was able to speak freely about the headaches that I'm having with this book that I'm working on and juggling it with the podcast and and the thing that I, I was harping on most um and it's something that I've only discovered, that I only recently discovered at the prompting of somebody that I met on Hinge and with whom I'd been having these very long personal video chats for the past month. It's that I did get laid off 
from the restaurant, which is kind of whatever, because I suspect, and maybe naively, I suspect that it's it's not going to be hard to get another job as a busboy. <laughs> but so now I've got all this spare time, and I'm kind of putting Thousand Movie Project on the back burner in order to focus on editing this novel that I wrote between December and March. And the reason I'm focusing on that is that I feel like it's the thing that might turn a profit. Like, the first draft is completely done. Uh, and if I work on it really hard for the next month and change, I can get to a, th a completed third draft. And then I can sort of have it out the door to agents to consider. And if an agent wants to represent it, then, you know, there's that whole process of the agent trying to pitch it to the publisher. Success is never a guarantee. But things would look a little bit sunnier financially. But the thing about focusing really hard on getting this book out the door is that I can have one... The way I'm looking at it is that there would be one of three outcomes. The first outcome is that this turns out just like the other books I've written, and no agent picks it up. It's relegated to a desk drawer for eternity. Um, and that's not ideal, obviously, but it's fine. They're all fine. The second outcome is that, luck of the draw, the book does find an agent, and it gets published, but it doesn't do well, and I end up not making much money from it. But, on the bright side, I'll have my foot in the door of publishing, and it'll be the start of a publishing career. And then the third option, which is too outlandishly nice to even think about seriously, is that the book is, maybe this, this book is better than I would wager. It is. And maybe it not only gets published, but it's successful. And I make I make enough money that I can you know, eat three times a day and, and bathe with scented soaps. Maybe this by this time in 2021, I, I'm, I'm buying condiments and things. Obviously, there are more than just three outcomes. A bunch of things could happen. Maybe I get an agent, and then the agent can't get it published, and then the agent drops me. There are a million variations to what could happen. But even though you kind of don't want to flirt with the idea of, oh, hey, maybe this book will turn into a great success... There is the ghost of that idea, which makes me kind of want, I don't know, my mind keeps going back to the book, mainly with this idea of, let me get it out the door, just get it off my desk, out from right in front of me so that I don't have to think about it anymore, because it, I can't help but entertain at least that ghost of a notion like, hey, maybe this is my ticket out. I don't know what I mean by that, like out from what, but I think just, this is my ticket maybe to, I guess, sustaining myself with creative work. But whatever, I, well, any of those outcomes is fine, I guess. I think I really just need this off my desk so that I can allocate my attention more concertedly to the project. One of the things that I consider to be the major lessons that I've learned from Thousand Movie Project is that rejection is pretty much fine. And there's two origins to this. The first one is pretty superficial, which is just that I wasn't in a very good headspace when I started Thousand Movie Project back in 2016. But then, once I had this enormous and tremendously fun project to keep me interested and busy 24-7, I noticed that I wasn't stressing about things as much because my brain was tethered to the project so it didn't then sort of wander into the terrain of oh what does so and so think of my outfit or whatever but the other half of what informs that that i don't know that self-possession is that a little over a year ago i was motivated by the project to write a really long essay about kevin smith's career as a filmmaker and the real focus of that essay was to explore how each one of his movies is a response to the previous one. A response to something he learned either about filmmaking or just about himself. And and, and the gist of it is this, um, and forgive me if I've talked about this on the, on the, on the show before, but, but it happened at around 2000, 2001 or something, where Kevin Smith spent a few months writing Jersey Girl, and it was the only project on his plate. And then he had to get financing, which took a while. And then he had to go into casting, and then he went into full swing with pre-production, and then it was another few months of filming, and then another few months of post-production, and then there were several weeks of going on the publicity circuit before the movie hit theaters and then finally the movie hits theaters it flops in the first two weeks and then it's like well 
I, I worked on this movie for two years, and now it's taken the movie going public and the whole critical apparatus surrounding the movie going public just a couple of weeks to absorb it and dismiss it. And he realized there was something, you know, that is the nature of the beast with, with a movie. You work on it for a few years and then it just takes the world a couple of weeks to digest it. But he realized that there was something wrong with allowing himself to be, be to be completely possessed by something like that. To basically spend two years of your life twisting antenna around so that you can get two weeks of reception. And that, that letdown was so crushing to him that he changed the rhythm of his career and how he monopolizes his time. He started diversifying. And it's the reason why now, about 20 years later, you'll see that he's got, you know, he's he's got three active podcasts. He's in pre-production for two, right now, he's in pre-production for two movies at once, Clerks 3 and Mallrats 2. He's the showrunner for Netflix's new Masters of the Universe anime series, which is still in production. He directs episodes of The Goldbergs and Supergirl, and I think The Flash as well. He writes an occasional comic book, he does stand-up, and then every couple years, he makes a full movie. And part of the reason for his busyness um, in this respect is that the long build-up to the failure of Jersey Girl taught him to just not have all of his eggs in one basket. You need to have other projects that will occupy your mind so that if one thing fails, you're not devastated because you can just say, you can just sort of shrug and turn your attention toward one of the several other projects that are, you know, that have better prospects. My point there is just that if I finish this novel and I send it out to agents and I am met with the same tide of rejection that met the three earlier books, or or worse, maybe the operatic silence of, of institutional indifference, I think it'll be okay. Because I did this last year too with the, with the formal 90-page book proposal for the nonfiction book that I was planning to write for a thousand movie project. It was the hardest writing assignment I've ever had in my life. Just a complete nightmare. Um, I remember I finished it and I sent it to agents literally one hour before seeing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on opening night. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was like my most anticipated movie of the year. I'd been looking forward to it since Tarantino announced finishing the screenplay like two years prior. And I was so relieved when I got to the theater that night. I'd been waiting to see the movie for over a year and I'd been, I'd been laboring over that fucking book proposal for two months that as, like my eyes just started leaking as soon as the opening credits began to roll because it was just this this cathartic deep breath of like this is my reward <laughs> i don't know it was a it was an intense feeling but yeah i sent out that proposal i guess last july or late in june and i had a lot writing on it but then i kind of forgot about it an agent will generally respond to your query letter within two to six weeks of receiving it. It's generally understood that you never you never bug an agent before six weeks. It, you know, if they haven't gotten back to you, you're not supposed to send an email checking in. But in those two to six weeks that I was waiting to hear back about the book proposal, you know, I was working on the blog. I was watching movies for the project. I was dating. I was doing the podcast. I was going to work. I was just, I was living my life. My attention was divided among many things. And so when the rejection slips started coming in, yes, they gave me this moment of mournful pause, especially because I started thinking like, oh my fucking God, I'm three years into this project. <laughs> what if what if it doesn't amount into a book, which is part of the intention is that this will help me launch a, a career in writing. But really most, most literary agents don't respond to you at all. In the modern day, they're just so flooded with query letters because they're you know, easy for anyone to pop off in, in, a, in a couple of minutes. So it isn't feasible for them to respond to every single person with a rejection slip, let alone a personalized rejection slip. And so I would submit the proposal, I would submit a book query, and there'd just be total silence. And then it just kind of disappeared from my plate. And it it's failure to attract an agent's attention did nothing 
to sort of ruin my day. The rejection of the Thousand Movie Project book proposal was a little bit easier to stomach than the rejection of Horny Nuns the year before it, which was itself a little bit easier to stomach than the rejection of the two previous books. And so, this new book of mine, various positions, if it ends up flopping with agents, I know it'll be pretty much fine, because I'll be writing blog posts, and I'll, doing, I'll be doing the show here, and I'll be making videos on Instagram and TikTok. My creative itches will be scratched. What I'm still on the fence about, though, and what I was discussing with Mike, is whether I will self-publish various positions in the event that it's uniformly rejected by agents. Because I'm pretty sure that I will hand it up for publication to just about any reputable imprint that, that shows a modicum of interest. It's scary to publish things because if I keep the completed story in my drawer and nobody ever sees it, well, I can go around and I can say like, hey, I wrote this book. And then when I tell you that, your imagination will probably conjure something better than what I actually did. And that's cool, I can just ride on what, what, you, what you believe to be my accomplishment. But when you can go on Amazon and fork over a couple of dollars and actually see what I've written, that's a little scary. Because then you can see that I may be actually not very good at this whole writing thing. Anyway, that's where my head is right now. I'm unfortunately, like this week I wasn't really reading or watching very much of anything apart from you know, Dune, then reading the novel and then watching YouTube videos about Dune. Like these read-alongs where people read 60 pages at a time and then they talk about it and they talk about some of the literary aspects, the cultural aspects, but I'll elaborate on that in episodes to come. Anyway, that's all for this week. Sorry for the delay if you are at all interested in getting this on Fridays, and thanks for listening. I will talk to you next time. <laughs>